Blog Talk Radio. The following sermon is by John MacArthur, pastor, author, and Bible teacher with Grace to You. If you have never contacted Grace to You, we want to send you a free booklet by John called Found God's Peace. It will show you the power you have as a believer to defeat worry and to experience profound peace in every circumstance. Request your free booklet by writing to peace at gty.org. That's peace at gty.org. This offer is good in North America and Europe through December 2021. And now, unleashing God's truth one verse at a time, here's Grace to You Bible teacher John MacArthur. I want to draw your attention back into the first chapter of Ephesians, and I, I want us to look at verses 11 through 14. And that is the final blessing. We have already talked about the fact that in verse 3, we have that amazing promise, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And we said the primary and first blessing was election. Verses 4 through 6, we were chosen in Him before the foundation of the world and predestined to be adopted. The second blessing was redemption in verse 7. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. And as we come to verse 11, we come to the final blessing. Election happened in the past. Redemption is going on in the present. This is the future. Verse 11, also, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to His purpose who works all things after the counsel of His will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. While redemption goes on in time, redemption is only complete in eternity. And we know it is not only the redemption of those who belong to the Lord, but it is the redemption of everything, as verse 10 says, the fullness of times, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on the earth. So we're laying a foundation for what this marvelous epistle of Ephesians is going to teach us in the months ahead. And it begins with this doxology of praise for what God has done in the past, election, what He is doing in the present, redemption, what He will do in the future, glorification. It was about a dozen years ago that a popular book came out written by Joel Osteen. The title of the book was Your Best Life Now. And it sold about 8 million copies at the time. It's been 12 years since then, and uh, 12 rather dramatic years, particularly the more recent ones. 
such a jarring, disturbing shift has taken place in the social order that we have in our country and around the world that I think few people are convinced that this is their best life right now. That would be a hard sell. It's probably good that the book came out before the current stress began, or it might not have been very popular. In fact, there may be a number of those eight million who would like to get their money back uh, since this didn't turn out to be what they had hoped. We are now living under dominant deception, dominant lies, hatred, crime, anger, selfishness, immorality, a pandemic wickedness that um, most of all hates the truth and will assault the truth every possible way it can. And that means that the church of Jesus Christ is going to experience things that we haven't experienced in this country or even in the West ever, perhaps. The noble experiment of America to have a just and civil society based on biblical morality and firm legal control by government exercising the threat and the reality of punishment to those who violate the law is essentially over. It's essentially finished. Even the revered Constitution has become irrelevant and subject to whimsical manipulation so that it no longer offers any strong barrier to the forces of evil and civil destruction. We're watching our country free fall into godless darkness, sexual perversion, gender insanity, crime of all kinds, the breakdown of law and order, family destruction, and above all, the constant flood of lies and efforts to silence the truth. Many of us feel this is the end of what we have hoped for when we hope for the best for our place in history. The final step, the final step in the demise of any society is when the truth is under assault. And you can almost tell what is true because if it's true, they cancel it. It's not hard to figure out what is true. If it's true, they attack it. Freedom to do evil, evil in fact is now legal in many cases, and righteousness is criminalized. So our nation has succumbed. 81 million people voted for a president who supports abortion, lies, childhood, sexual transition, transgender, homosexuality in every form. 81 million people voted him into office. And you ask, how could a society fall so fast? What is it about human nature that allows them to be so easily victimized by corruption, wickedness, and sin? Well, the same question was asked and has been asked ever since the Second World War. The question was, how could Hitler be so easily able to persuade normal German people to murder hostages, send people into forced labor camps, euthanize people, starve them to death, kill them medically, terror bomb them, let them die in camps, so that as many as 31 million people were killed outright in that regime, including a million children, at least and six million Jews. How does that happen? How can 
the whole population turn so easily from normal life to being murderers. You could ask the same question of Russia. How could Stalin convince the Russian people to slaughter something over 20 million people? So collectively, 50 million people are slaughtered. You might think the answers are complex. Actually, they're not. The answers to those two questions are pretty simple. All the unredeemed are of their father, the devil, who is a liar and a murderer. And unless you restrain that in human life, it will run amok. It's easy to get people to do evil. It's the way they're hardwired. It's their bent. When the restraint of government is loosened at all, taken off or perverted, or when government no longer acts to punish evil and reward good, all kinds of sin will explode. Whether human government allows evil or commands evil, in the case of Hitler and Stalin, people will come together to do evil because they are evil. You don't see any people amassing in the streets to rush someplace to do good. They don't run to do good. It's easy to gather people to do evil. That's their natural bent. In case you question that, let me remind you of what the Word of God says in Romans chapter 3. And uh, we'll look at verse 10. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths and the path of peace they have not known, there is no fear of God before their eyes. That is biblical anthropology. That's a biblical definition of humanity. People run to do evil. And unless they are restrained by conscience, by family discipline, by government authority, all hell will break loose because that's the most natural expression of the children of Satan. He is their father, and he is a liar, and he is a murderer. So many times we've gone back to Romans chapter 1, but just a reminder, verse 28, just as they didn't see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. They not only do those things, they make them legal. Now, I understand that you know all this. I'm just 
encapsulating it a little bit, because I understand also how discouraging this is. We have been an incredible beneficiary of God's kindness, haven't we here? Because we've been able to go through this horrible time uh, and be together and worship and proclaim the gospel and the Word of God. But while at the same time we enjoy this wonderful island of sanity in the midst of the sea of insanity, we're not unaware of what's going on around us. Nobody really seems to care to hide any wickedness anymore. Hearts are unmasked while faces are masked. <laughs> this cannot be our best life. And it's not going to get better. Evil men grow worse and worse. This is a free fall not temporary. We're going down, and we're going down under the sheer force of unbelief and sin, unprotected and unrestrained by the judgment of God. Can we fix it? No. Should we join it? Of course not. We can't join the hate and the anger and the racism masquerading as virtue. We understand what the Bible says. Let me just remind you of 1 John 2.15. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And then this, the world is passing away. And also it's lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. That's what we wanted to hear, right? The world is passing away, but we live forever. Also in 1 John chapter 5, we are reminded that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one, and it is passing away. In contrast to that, Philippians 3 tells us that our citizenship is in heaven, from which we wait eagerly for a Savior, Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform us into His own likeness. This is not our best life, not by any means. To all who are in Christ, our best life is yet to come. Our best life is the glory of heaven. And what you have in the verses that I read, verses 11 to 14, is the promise of God about that life to come. We have an inheritance. And that inheritance was predestined from before the foundation of the world according to the purpose of God who works all things after the counsel of His will to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. We have an inheritance. This is not our best life. 
The only question is, can we trust God's Word? Well, Hebrews 10.23 says He is faithful that promised. And Romans 4.21 says what God has promised, He is able to do. The God who is truth, who defines truth, who speaks truth and only truth, promises to all who are in Christ every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ. That is summed up by the past act of election, the present act of redemption, and the future act of glorification. The first blessing was to be chosen. The second blessing to be redeemed. The final blessing to be glorified. So let's look at verses 11 to 14 and at least get a little bit of an insight into this incredibly wonderful promise. You'll notice the key word is inheritance. It appears a couple of times in these brief verses, once in verse 11 and then down again in verse 14. Klerao is the Greek verb. It basically means to obtain as inheritance. The idea is... is what you read in the NAS apparently on the surface is we have obtained an inheritance. But the idea is really more we are an inheritance. We are an inheritance. So let's think about that. Or another way to translate it would be we have been made an inheritance. This is remarkable language. It doesn't discount the fact that we have an inheritance. And this can be translated that way as it is in the the NAS, but it also can be translated, we have obtained or we have been made an inheritance as well as have obtained an inheritance. So it's got two sides to it, and I, I just want to point that out to you. We have been made an inheritance. What does that mean? Whose inheritance are we? We are Christ's inheritance. He purchased us at the cross. He inherits us. We are His offspring, to use the language of Isaiah 53. We are Christ's inheritance. The Father has given us, as we saw in John 6 and John 17, to the Son as love gifts. The reason we are redeemed is that we might be the Son's inheritance, that we might be His bride, that the Father gives Him out of eternal love. We are His inheritance. The Father expresses His love to the Son by giving the Son a redeemed humanity who will love Him and serve Him and honor Him and praise Him forever and ever and ever. It also gives the ultimate compliment by making them in some way reflect His very image. So yes we have an inheritance that we will receive. But to begin with, we are an inheritance. And the language allows that. And in fact, I think that's the way the Legacy Standard Bible accurately translated. So we are His inheritance. But on the other hand, we don't want to discount the fact that we have also obtained an inheritance. You can look at it in the way the hymn writer wrote many, many years ago, I am His and He is mine. He inherits us 
we inherit Him. That shouldn't be surprising, not in the language of Romans 8.17. We are joint heirs with Christ. All things belong to you, 1 Corinthians, and you belong to Christ. Again, Christ is in us and we are in Christ. We are Christ's inheritance and it is Christ who grants us an inheritance. And the, the inheritance that we receive is what the Father promises to His Son in the fullness of summing up everything in Him. I just want you to see the breadth of this. You are a love gift given from the Father to the Son. You are in that sense the inheritance that Christ gained from His Father for His work. The Bible is clear about this. We, we could take a lot of time to cover many Scriptures, but let me just give you a few to think about. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. So we will obtain an inheritance. We are an inheritance. We are Christ's inheritance given by the Father to the Son as His inheritance. But we also, because we are joint heirs with Christ, receive all that He is given by the Father as well. That inheritance, verse 5 of 1 Peter 1 says, is protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. In Colossians, just a few Scriptures Chapter 1, verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For He rescued us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So we have redemption, and beyond redemption, we have the inheritance. We are qualified by the work of Christ to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Over in the third chapter of Colossians, just one more text there. I think it's verse 24. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. So just to stress the idea that this goes two ways. We are an inheritance and we receive an inheritance. This is literally summing up all that could possibly be said about future glory. We are Christ's inheritance. That is why you will notice down in verse 14 that redemption has made us God's possession. God's possession. God owns us, purchased us with His own blood, says Acts 20 and then gives us to the Son as His inheritance, in response to which the Son gives all of us back to the Father, as 1 Corinthians 15 points it out, and wrapped up in our being an inheritance is the fact that we also receive an inheritance. We are joint heirs with Christ. And God promises in Christ peace, love, Grace, wisdom, eternity with Him, joy, 
victory, strength, guidance, all our needs met, power, knowledge, mercy, forgiveness, righteousness, gifts from the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit Himself, fellowship with the Trinity, instruction from the Word, illumination, truth, spiritual discernment, heaven, a room in the Father's house, eternal riches, all of this, and we begin to taste this in this life. But eye has not seen, nor has ear heard the things that God has prepared for them that love Him. As wonderful as the enjoyment of our Christian experience is here, it can't be compared to what is yet to come. Again, in Second Peter chapter 1, says that God, through His divine power, has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Everything. Verse 4, He granted to us His precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. He promises that we will escape. We will escape the corruption in the world and become partakers of the divine nature. This is our inheritance. All the promises, says Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, all the promises of God are in Christ, yes. So I just want to start by pointing out that this inheritance idea goes two ways. We are or have been made an inheritance, and we will also receive an inheritance. It's God's way of just sweeping everything up and saying it's all going to belong to Christ and Christ belongs to you, and you belong to Him, and it's all yours. This is not our best life now. The only way this could be your best life now is if you're going to hell. That's the only way. And then this is your best life. So let's look at this inheritance just three things to consider. Number one, the ground of our inheritance. And you know this. We have obtained or been made an inheritance. And how did this happen? What is the ground of this? On what basis? Having been predestined according to His purpose who works all things after the counsel of His will. That's where it all started. And we go right back, don't we, to verses 4 through 6. Chosen, predestined. The ground of our inheritance is the fact that we were predestined to this end. Predestined, verse 5, to adoption as sons according to the kind intention of His will. Adopted as sons of God through Jesus Christ to Himself. Again, this speaks to the fact that we belong to Christ we are His heritage, His inheritance. Because God determined that when He chose us, as verse 4 says, before the foundation of the world. That is the ground of our inheritance. And please notice how many times it says in this section, in Christ. Verse 3, in Christ. Verse 4, in Him. Verse 6, in the Beloved. Verse 7, in Him. Verse 9, in Him. Verse 10, in Him. Verse 12, in Christ. Verse 13, in Him. In Him. All of this 
is tied to our union with Christ. We were chosen in Him before the foundation of the world. We're redeemed in Him, verse 7. And our inheritance is in Him. It is our union with Him that brings us all spiritual blessings. It starts with predestination. I don't need to go back over that just to remind you that predestination doesn't cancel out your own responsibility. How do you know that? Let's keep reading. Predestined according to His purpose who works all things after the counsel of His will to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed. Hmm. The ground of our inheritance is that we were predestined and we believed. It started with His purpose, which as we pointed out some weeks ago in 2 Timothy 1.9, He purposed in pledging to the Son of God in eternity past a redeemed humanity. Predestined is pro-orizo. We get the word horizon from it. It's intensified with a preposition at the beginning. It means to mark out the boundaries. God literally marked out His own people, chose them. And they were in God's plan and in God's will and in God's purpose and in God's mind eternally connected to His Son in their being chosen and in their being redeemed. They were there with Him. They were in Christ when He died. They were in Christ when He rose again. They now live in Christ and they will be even more intensely and perfectly joined to Him in the future. All of this is God's plan. Go back to verse 11. He is the one who works all things after the counsel of His will. Energeo. He energizes everything. So when you think about salvation, I want you to think about it as the purpose of God, the will of God, the plan of God, the intention of God. He chose you. But sometimes people get a little bit confused with this and they wonder, well, where is the necessary faith in that? And it's side by side. Down into verse 13. You also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed. Salvation doesn't happen apart from faith. Through the years, that's been a question that is asked of me over and over again. How do those go together? If salvation is all of God, if it's monergistic, if God does the choosing, God does the predestining, if God has to give the life to the dead person, if God has to do the regenerating, if God has to grant the faith, if, if God has to give the sinner sight and life in order to respond and believe, how is it the sinner's responsibility? And the answer is, I'm not sure the dynamics of that, but I know that God's purposes in election never come to fruition unless 
someone believes the gospel. And we've been told to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. One illustration of this, if you look for just a moment at Acts chapter 2, Peter's preaching, verse 23, Acts 2 in his Pentecost sermon. This man, speaking of the Lord Jesus, delivered over, handed over for crucifixion by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put Him to death. There you have divine predetermination and human responsibility. God predetermined it, but you're guilty because you killed Him. God raised Him up. If it was God's predetermined plan, why why are they held responsible for doing what they did? Well, obviously, God predetermined the death of Christ for the salvation of sinners. But the fact that God predetermined that doesn't justify the hatred and the rejection of the people who had Jesus killed. You cannot be a believer without believing. Basic. You say, well, I still don't understand how that goes together. Again, let me just push the, the issue a little bit. John 1, 12. As many as received Him, that would be the same as believing, to them He gave the right to become children of God. Even to those who believe in His name, who becomes the child of God? Those who believe. Then verse 13, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. There you have the same thing again. It's the will of God, not the will of man, and yet you must believe. In fact, if you don't believe, you weren't elect, because election will be confirmed by faith. That's not the issue. The struggle that people have is, why am I responsible for something if only God can do it? And my answer to that is, I don't have any other answer than what Scripture says. But let me, let me tell you, this is a very broad issue. And I often illustrate it this way. Who wrote the book of Romans? Are you struggling with that answer? <laughs> yes, you are immediately. Because you don't know whether to say Paul or the Holy Spirit. And you know it wasn't an alternate verse thing. Paul did one and the Holy Spirit did one. <laughs> and you know it was not apart from Paul's experience and Paul's thoughts and Paul's vocabulary, but every word was from the Holy Spirit. Wherever you have... In every major doctrine, wherever you have God and man combined in a divine act, you have that same challenge, that same apparent paradox. I can ask the question another way. Who lives your Christian life? I hope you can figure that out because you're responsible for it, aren't you? You say, well, no, it's the Holy Spirit. Really, do you want to blame Him for what you have become? 
Well, I can't do it without Him. That, that's right. If whatever's good happens in your life, you give Him the praise. Whatever wrong happens in your life, you take the blame. There you are again with the same reality that you cannot do anything in the flesh. You can only do it by the power of the Spirit, and yet you are responsible to conduct your life in a sanctified way. So when you come to the issue of predestination, election, sovereign regeneration, and human responsibility, I don't know what the answer to that is, but that should encourage you because it means it's a far more glorious issue than any human being could ever understand. But it doesn't happen without believing. That's why the New Testament is filled with the command to believe. To believe. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing the Word of God. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart God raised Him from the dead, you'll be saved. You, you, you can't think for a moment that you are supposed to figure out whether you're elect. That's absurd. As Spurgeon said, we can't run around and see if people have an E stamped on their back. But you are commanded to believe. And you'll die in your sins if you believe not on Me, Jesus said. The, the, the reality of all of this is you have an apparent paradox in every major doctrine in Scripture that brings God together with man. So we have an inheritance. The ground of that inheritance is basically predestination, verse 11. But the ground of that inheritance is also, according to verse 13, believing. Your responsibility is not to figure out God's predestined plan. Your responsibility is to believe, and whoever believes the Lord will never turn away, right? So that's the foundation understanding. The ground of our inheritance is bound up in God's predestined plan and our response of faith. The second point that I would just direct you briefly to is the guarantee of our inheritance. Verse 13, at the end it says, "...having believed you were sealed in Him, in Christ, with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance." with a view to the redemption of God's own possession. What is the guarantee of our inheritance? The guarantee of our inheritance is the Holy Spirit. You are sealed in Him, in Christ, with the Holy Spirit. You can go all the way back to Ezekiel and back to the promises of the New Covenant, Ezekiel 36 and Ezekiel um, 37, and you will find that one of the promises that God gave in the New Covenant is that He would give His Spirit, that He would take away the, the stony heart and give you a heart of flesh and put His Spirit within you. And one very essential ministry of the Holy Spirit is sealing. Sealing with the Holy Spirit of promise. I love that title, the Holy Spirit of promise. 
All that the Holy Spirit does is not just now, in the immediate, in the moment. The Holy Spirit does illuminate us. The Holy Spirit is our resident teacher. The Holy Spirit does convict us of sin. The Holy Spirit does an ongoing work in our lives of enabling us to minister through spiritual gifts. But He is also the Holy Spirit of promise, and that is to say He guarantees the fulfillment of the future inheritance. Now it says the seal of the Spirit. You were sealed in Him. What what does this notion of sealing mean? Well, let me see if I can just give you some illustrations of it. In in looking at it maybe from different facets, first of all, we'd say sealing is a sign of security. Just borrowing from Jewish culture a little bit, back in Daniel chapter 6, you don't have to go there, I'll just refer to it. Back in Daniel chapter 6, a man had a, a signet engraved as his identifying mark, sometimes a ring or or some kind of signet that he would use to identify anything that was his, uh, any legal document. This was his stamp. It might have been on his finger. It might have been around his waist, around his neck. It was his mark. And when the king commanded Daniel to be confined, and the king wanted everybody to do exactly what he said that they were supposed to do, he gave his signet to be affixed to the seal on the lion's den. It only meant that no one could break that seal unless they had greater power than the king. You remember that Christ's tomb was sealed with a Roman seal, which meant that no one could break that seal. No one had the power to break that seal unless they had more power than Rome. That was a way to secure something. And that is exactly what the seal of the Spirit is. We are secured, and we are secured secured by the Holy Spirit, and no one has greater power than He. No one can break the seal. The seal also in Jewish culture was a sign of authenticity. You remember back in 1 Kings 21 when Ahab wanted Naboth's vineyard, and through Jezebel's deception, she got it for him by writing letters and sealing them with Ahab's seal. This was the official mark of authenticity, the royal signature. So God seals us to secure us, and He seals us so that it is labeled that we belong to Him. We are legitimate, authentic sons of God. We find a seal also in Jeremiah chapter 32. God instructs Jeremiah to purchase a piece of property that he wants him to have, and his descendants will have it much later in time after the return from captivity. The seal indicated ownership. Ownership. So the seal of the Holy Spirit means that we are secure. We are authentically the children of God. We are His, and in the end, we will belong to Him. In the Old Testament, we find a seal also used as a sign of authority. You remember the story of Esther? When Ahasuerus wanted to give to Haman the delegated power to kill the Jews, he sealed it with a signet ring. 
Later on, when things changed and he was confronted with what Haman was going to do, chapter 8, he gave to Mordecai and to Esther his pledge and promise to protect the Jews and to destroy Haman. And he again sealed it. It is a symbol of authority. You can carry out this action. You have authority delegated from me. I think that's a marvelous way to think of the Holy Spirit. He is the one who grants to us delegated authority to access all divine resources. Jesus said, ask anything in my name and what? I'll give it to you. Anything according to my will. Being sealed with the Spirit is a sign of security, authenticity, ownership, and authority. And we exercise all those things as believers. So the ground of our inheritance is predestination and faith. The guarantee of our inheritance is the promise, the Holy Spirit of promise who secures us and our inheritance. One other comment on verse 14. The Holy Spirit is given as a pledge. Not only a seal, but a pledge. What is a pledge? It's the Greek word arabon. It's used a couple of ways. One is a down payment. The Holy Spirit is the first installment on um, our inheritance yet to come. The Holy Spirit is God's down payment on our eternal inheritance. And every believer has the Holy Spirit. If any man have not the Holy Spirit, he's none of his. Romans 8 9. So the fact that the Spirit has taken up residence in us and we are the temple of the Spirit of God means that God has given us the first installment on our eternal inheritance. Arabon was also used another way. It was used for an engagement ring. So the Holy Spirit is for us not only the down payment to our future inheritance, but the the engagement ring that means we are the bride and we will be married to the bridegroom, Jesus Christ. As a believer, I think you know that your best life is yet to come, right? Paul is really calling on these troubled believers living in the worst life of their day to suffer patiently and wait with hearts full of praise for the eternal inheritance that was promised to them. He's calling for them to understand the spiritual, heavenly blessings that were already secured for them by the redemptive work of Jesus Christ and the elective purpose of God in eternity past, and they were just waiting for the full realization of them when they entered glory. You are, a children, you are a child of God. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You are an heir of God. You are the heritage of Christ. You have a heavenly inheritance. You are joint heirs with Him. Heaven is preparing for your arrival. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. The best is yet to come far and away, incomprehensibly. Sometimes we're like a child prince who before his years of maturity can't grasp the enormity of his inheritance. We have little understanding really. 
That is why down in verse 18, for a preview of what's to come, Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints. I am praying for you that your understanding, the eyes of your heart, may be enlightened, illuminated, so that you will know the hope of your calling, the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints. That would be my prayer for you. Don't get caught up in this world. We can't fix it. It's not going to turn around. This is it. Get ready for it to be less than what you want it to be. You're waiting for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time, to borrow Peter's words. Fix your affections on things above, not on things on the earth. The ground of our inheritance is predestination and faith. The guarantee of our inheritance is the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of promise, who is both a seal and a down payment engagement ring, a pledge. Finally, the goal of our inheritance. What is the purpose in all of this? End of verse 12, to the praise of His glory. End of verse 14, to the praise of His glory. God is going to finally redeem us into glory as His own possession, verse 14, to the praise of His glory. That is always the reason for everything. It's not about us. It's about Him. This is what's remarkable, and I want you to grasp this as a final thought. If you're like me, you wonder why the Lord even tolerates you. <laughs> After all, He is perfect. Perfect in every way. It's incomprehensible to imagine a situation where you are altogether, in every way, exactly what He wants you to be. So that you have capacity for only one thing, and that is to bring praise to His glorious name. That's what heaven is all about. It's not about you getting your own mansion. It's not about you traversing the new Jerusalem and counting the jewels. It's about God having made you like His Son, so that you fully satisfy His holy desire. You are to Him as His own Son is to Him. That's your best life. Father, we thank You for Your Word. So much could be said about all of this. And we're scratching the surface in so many ways to grasp the wonders of eternity. Thank You for revelation in Your Holy Word. It's incomprehensible to us 
that you would ever, ever save us from our wretchedness and sin, wickedness and corruption, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life, that you would ever save us out of the kingdom of darkness, that you would ever deliver us from bondage to the liar and the murderer Satan who is the father of all sinners. We are unworthy. We thank You for Your grace. We thank You for the grace of election, the grace of redemption, and the final grace of glorification. We can't even imagine being in Your presence and being as perfect as Your Son. But we know You've said we'll be like Him when we see Him as He is. That's our best life. Anything short of that, we thank You is very, very brief. A vapor that appears for a little time and vanishes away. Help us to get through this life enjoying the foretastes of heaven, enjoying the reality of our being in Christ, but longing from the depths of our heart for the day when there will be no sin, no transgression, no iniquity, no trespasses, no shortcomings. All will be holiness and holiness and holiness, nothing but holiness. And we will be as holy as Your Son is. And we will be to the praise of Your glory. Until that time, may we cleanse ourselves from all the filthiness of the flesh that still remains perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Sanctify us until the time when we are fully sanctified. Our Father, we are overwhelmed that we have been chosen before the foundation of the world, that Christ redeemed us by name, by identification, personally, in His death on the cross and rose for our justification, and that You in predestining us, predestined us to an inheritance laid up for us, as Peter said, undefiled, untarnished for us. And that that inheritance is that we will be the inheritance of Christ Himself. You give us to Him as the inheritance passed down from You, the Father, to Your Son. And at the same time, we will receive the full inheritance of all that He possesses as joint heirs with Him. May we set our affections on things above and not on things on the earth. May we not get caught up in all the disappointments, 
all the distractions. May we see Christ clearly keeping our eyes fixed on Him, being transformed into His image from one level of glory to the next. That is our prayer. In His name who asked us to come boldly, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to John MacArthur, Bible teacher with grace to you. For free access to all of John's lessons and a listing of study Bibles and books available for sale, visit Grace to You's website at gty.org. John MacArthur and Grace to You reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available at gty.org, and it includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating this digital file.
different colors and different shades All fearfully and wonderfully made Through each the glory of God displayed God made me and you For all the value, all our loss All the great need for the cross Jesus died, rose and paid the cost God made me and you Different colors and different shades All fearfully and wonderfully made Through each the glory of God display God made me and you For all the value, all our loss All the great need for the cross Jesus died, rose and paid the cross God made me and you A massive failure This is Ken Ham on a mission to strengthen the global church With the power of God's word Is the Bible ambiguous about abortion? Well, sadly, nearly half of self-identified Christians say yes. It's a massive failure on the part of parents and the church that so many believe the Bible is wishy-washy or unclear on the sanctity of every human life, including the unborn. Scripture is not ambiguous. It's abundantly clear, as we'll see all this week. People just either don't know their Bibles, have never been taught to use God's Word as their starting point, or are suppressing the truth. It's clear from both God's word and science. Abortion causes the death of an unborn child, a person made in God's image, and that's murder. Get equipped to stand for life with answers when you visit our website at AnswersRadio.com. You'll be equipped and encouraged in your faith by going to AnswersRadio.com.
Don't just assume. This is Ken Ham, heading up the ministry that's built a 510-foot-long Noah's Ark. Yesterday we learned that nearly half of professing Christians believe the Bible is ambiguous on abortion. How is there such confusion, especially on a topic that's literally a matter of life and death? Well, it's because by and large the church hasn't taught foundationally, beginning with Genesis. It hasn't been showing that God's Word is the starting point for our thinking in every area. That humans alone are made in the image of God. We're not just animals. That we're fearfully and wonderfully made by God, known before we're even conceived. Killing an unborn child is murder, just as much as killing a toddler. And God's Word is clear on murder. It's sin. Want more answers? Check out our brand new streaming platform when you visit our website at AnswersRadio.com or listen to this program again or share it at AnswersRadio.com. Here we go, kids, gather round. A brand new sound to praise the one who has the crown. In today's lesson, we'll talk about the Holy Bible, the most important book we all need for survival. The Bible is God's message for this world. It's for every man and woman, every boy and girl. And that message is that if we turn to Christ and place our trust in Him, we'll have eternal life. Now when we're at church, yeah, it's fun, it's cool. When we hear a lot of stories in Sunday school, like Jacob and Noah, Moses and Daniel, David and Jonah, Joseph, and Samuel, but all the little stories tell one big story about the God who made all things for his glory. So as we read the Bible, it's important that we see this. There's only one hero and his name is Jesus. Where should we begin? When God made the whole wide world just by speaking. By his great might, he said, let there be light. The light he called day and the dark he called night. He made the earth and the seas, the dirt and the seeds, the herds and the trees, the birds and the bees. But the big surprise God had up his sleeve. On day number six, created Adam and Eve. Made in the image of the beautiful Most High. God told them, be fruitful and multiply. Everything's yours, but that tree do not try. Because in the day you eat it, you're surely going to die. I'm sure you know the rest. Yes, they failed the test. And ever since then, the world has been a big mess. So as we read the Bible, it's important that we see this. There's only one hero, and his name is Jesus. When we read God's word today, the greatest saints had their flaws on full display. And it was written down for us in order that we may recognize that Christ is the only way. Adam ate forbidden fruit and lost his life. Abraham got scared and lied about his wife. Sarah laughed to herself when she heard God's promise. Rebecca encouraged her son to be dishonest. Aaron used craft to make a golden calf. Moses 
Rogers got mad, struck the rock with a stab. David sinned greatly, even lost his baby. And Jacob, he was just all around shady. The point is not to make light of our flaws, but to show that every one of us needs to cross. So as we read the Bible, it's important that we see this. There's only one hero, and his name is Jesus. You shall not murder. This is Ken Ham, CEO of Answers in Genesis, the Creation Museum, and Ark Encounter. Nearly half of professing believers in the U.S. think the Bible is ambiguous on abortion. So I'd like to share some very unambiguous Bible verses with them. Genesis 9, verse 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Proverbs 6. The Lord hates hands that shed innocent blood. Exodus 20, verse 13, you shall not murder. When the sperm and egg come together, a person is formed with a unique combination of genetic information. Nothing new is added. Everything that makes you is there from that moment. Yes, a fertilized egg is a person made in God's image, and the Lord hates the shedding of innocent blood. Get more answers when you visit our website at AnswersRadio.com and subscribe to receive free daily email insights from Ken Ham when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com. I have a Bible that I read. I know the truth and I believe. I go to church with my friends. I have a job.
Relative morality? This is Ken Ham, and we produce the unique, family-friendly Answers Bible Curriculum. Over one-third of professing believers in America say the morality around abortion depends on the circumstance and that it's acceptable if it spares the mother from financial or emotional hardship. This idea basically says morality changes depending on the situation. But morality isn't based on arbitrary human standards. God creates life, and he has spoken to us authoritatively in his word and said, you shall not murder. Now, the circumstances surrounding conception or the life of a child can be very complicated, but the issue of abortion isn't. It's wrong, and a sin against the creator, the one who fearfully and wonderfully knits us together in his very image. Find answers on our website at AnswersRadio.com or check out our new video streaming service, Answers.tv, when you visit our website at AnswersRadio.com.
Abortion is murder, but don't stop there. This is Ken Ham, publisher of the popular family magazine called Answers. All this week we've seen the Bible is clear, abortion is murder, and we need to be teaching this truth. But don't stop there. Show how the gospel even applies. The gospel is hope, peace, and forgiveness for those involved with abortion in any way. God promises if we repent and trust in Christ, he removes our sins and he remembers them no more. The gospel is the hope for a culture of death. The bad news is we're all sinners with wicked hearts. The good news is that the gospel changes hearts and lives. It's the gospel that sets us free to love God and others, including speaking boldly and lovingly and providing practical help and hope to those who are in need. Plan your visit to the life-size Noah's Ark at the Ark Encounter when you go to AnswersRadio.com or listen to this program again or view a transcript at AnswersRadio.com. I love to tell the story. It will be my theme and glory to tell the old, old story. Of Jesus and His Oh uh-huh. 
after telling the church to love your neighbor and put on the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says in Romans 14:1, do not quarrel over opinions. Yet many Christians are quarreling over masks and vaccines. Some go as far as saying that you are sinning if you do not mask up or get vaccinated. Russell Moore, president of the Ethics and Religious Liberties Commission, said in the Washington Post that loving your neighbor means urging people to get vaccinated and that you also take the vaccine for the coronavirus. Columnist David French has said that reluctance among Christians to get vaccinated demonstrates a disregard for the health and well-being of neighbors. He says Christians who don't get vaccinated do more harm to the health of the church than the worst of Joe Biden's culture war regulations or the most radical developments in the sexual revolution. Karen Swallow Pryor, professor at Southeastern Seminary, said that pro-life Christians who do not wear a mask have brought a culture of death. How is that loving your neighbor? Accusing him of sin he has not committed? Has God not said you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor? Wear a mask and get a vaccine are not commands of God. They are the commands of men. In Mark 7, the Pharisees saw that Jesus' disciples did not wash their hands. So they asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the traditions of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Jesus replied, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. If you want to wear a mask or get vaccinated, then do it. If you don't want to wear a mask or get vaccinated, then don't. Stop calling sin that which God does not call sin. Let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding when we understand the text. That was what also known as when we understand when you understand the text. And that's W-U-T-T, and you can find out W-U-T-T on YouTube and also on our website, www.utt.com. So check it out. And now this is from Lecture. Earlier you said there's there's no Bible verses that say that we're saved by faith alone. No, no, there is one Bible verse that talks about faith alone. Which one is that? It's James 2.24. You're saved by works and not by faith alone. Okay, so That's the only place in the whole Bible. Yeah. Uh, except for Ephesians two eight and nine. Not except for anywhere else. Yeah. Do you know Ephesians two eight and nine? Oh, go ahead. By grace are you saved through faith, yeah. and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, yeah. not of works, lest any man should yeah. boast. Yeah. yeah, and of course I agree with that totally. But James two twenty four is you're saved by works and not by faith alone. And Abraham and uh, what's her name, uh, Rahab, it's right there it says, uh, it, they, they were saved by works. So that contradicts with what you said. And I agree with what you said, by the way. <laughs> Does James teach we've got to work our way to heaven and we're not saved by faith alone? Is it true that the only verse in the Bible that indicates that faith alone saves well, let's take a look at, oh, what's that hermeneutical word? Context. James chapter 2 and verse 24, you see, a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. I'm biting my nails, so concerned that Protestant Christianity of grace alone, faith alone, and Christ alone is wrong. Not. 
Context, context, context always clears up the confusion. Just look at the verses surrounding your verse in question, and you will always have resolution. Let's do that, shall we? James chapter 2 and verse 21, Was not Abraham our father justified by works? When he offered up his son Isaac on the altar, hey, Friel, you're actually backsliding. That seems to support. We've got to work to get to heaven. Hold on. This is verse 21. Verse 24 says that we're not saved by faith alone. Let's take a look at the verses in between, shall we? James chapter 2 and verses 22 and 23. You see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. Here it is. Abraham was a friend of God. How? He had righteousness credited, imputed to him by working? No, by believing in God. Period. Now let's just go back a wee little bit. You see that faith, this faith, that was credited to him as righteousness to be made a friend of God, was active along with his works. We are clearly saved by faith alone, but a faith that is genuine doesn't stand alone. It demonstrates that it is valid by doing works. The works don't save. The works demonstrate we are saved. Context, context, context makes it clear. And if you really wanted to pin down a Roman Catholic who would say, ha, 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 there is a verse that says that we're not saved by faith alone, show them the rest of the context of James chapter 2. Let's do that, shall we? James chapter 2 and verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? What is this? This is a description of genuine saving faith. It shows itself. Genuine faith works out. The faith that is real demonstrates itself in obedience, in sanctification, in serving, in giving, in doing, and evangelizing. Those activities don't save. They simply demonstrate that you are saved. More verses that tell us that. James chapter 2, verse 17. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Could it be any more clear? A false faith, ho-hum, no works. Genuine saving faith, it exhibits itself in works. Wait. There are more verses, James chapter 2 and verses 18 and 19. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Well, show me your faith apart from your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Demons believe in God, if you will. Do they love him? Do they serve him? Do they give money to the local church? No. Why? Because they don't have genuine saving faith. And somebody who says, I believe in Jesus, but there are no works that accompany that profession of faith, they simply reveal it is a false profession. 
I'm sorry. Oh, there's more verses. James chapter 2 and verse 20. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Bang, bang, bang. The context is making it clear. Genuine, salvific faith is never an island. Genuine, saving faith, the type of faith that Abraham had, which guaranteed that he'd be counted a friend of God because righteousness was credited to him, was a believing faith that demonstrated its validity by working. Now that we have seen all of the preceding verses, let's run through the verses that Clarence tried to pluck out of context to hammer Protestants into believing, well, you got to do some works to get to heaven, too. James chapter 2 and verse 21, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see, faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by its works. The scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, it was credited to him as righteousness, and therefore he was called a friend of God. You see, a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Clarence, Clarence, Clarence. Stop taking verses out of context, context. Context, And if you are not persuaded that we are saved by faith alone, you will be next on Wretched. Important dates in Christian history. 405 AD. After 23 years of work, translating from Hebrew and Greek manuscripts, Jerome completes the Latin Vulgate version of the Bible that becomes the standard for the next 1,000 years. Welcome back to Wretched. If you are not thoroughly convinced that we are saved by faith alone, prepare yourself for (laughs) drubbing the analogy of Scripture, a Reformation hermeneutical principle. When you read a verse that might be a little bit unclear, you scour through the rest of the Bible looking for clearer verses that will help you to understand the unclear. In other words... The clear reveals the unclear. If you have any sort of confusion about, hmm, well, in James chapter 2, it seems to say that Abraham wasn't saved by faith alone. Well, if context, context, context didn't persuade you he was, then apply the analogy of Scripture. Go looking for other verses that talk about being justified by faith alone. Lo and behold, in this instance, we have Romans chapter 4 which is a thorough drubbing against the idea you can work your way to heaven. James chapter 2 cites Abraham not being saved by faith alone because he was willing to sacrifice his son. The rest of the context informs us, no, 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 he was, he was just showing you what real saving faith looks like. You are saved by faith alone. Abraham believed in God. It was credited to him as righteousness, and he was counted a friend of God by faith alone. But it was a faith that demonstrated itself in works. The context, another hermeneutical principle of James chapter 2, makes that verse clear. But Romans 4 makes it crystal clear when it goes about the business of talking about our old friend 
Abraham. Romans chapter 4 and verse 2. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Wow, this is clear. Abraham was not justified by works, Clarence. He was justified by faith. This crystal clear verse, it removes any fog of confusion that somebody might have if they pluck James chapter 2, verse 24 out of context. Hold on. Romans 4 doesn't stop. Verse 3. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God. It was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham was saved by faith. It was credited to him by righteousness because he believed in God. Verse 4 of Romans chapter 4. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. In other words, if you can do anything to earn your way to heaven, you get credit. That ain't how it works. God is going to get all the credit for saving sinners. If you work your way there, it's like receiving a paycheck for a day's labor. But that's not how Christianity works. Jesus paid it all because he did all the work and he gets all the credit. And if we get to work to get there... He's not going to get all the glory he deserves. Wait, Romans chapter 4 continues, verse 5. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Romans 4, crystal clear, illuminating perhaps any confusion in James chapter 2. Romans 4, verse 6. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. The clear illuminating the unclear. Verse 7. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. On and on. And on goes Romans chapter 4, gladly, happily, cheerily announcing with a great deal of repetition and saying the same thing over and over again redundantly to make it clear for you, your works, their filthy rags, you can be saved by grace alone. But Romans 4 isn't done. This is a verse 9. Is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. Abraham's circumcision, or in the New Testament case for some, baptism, doesn't save. Works don't save. Abraham was saved by faith alone. And verse 10 how then was it credited, while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. To those who might say, well, you've you, you got to obey that law to get saved. You've got to do that circumcision thing to get saved. Abraham was saved before he got circumcised. So it goes that argument, Romans chapter 4. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised that righteousness might be credited to them no it's not done yet romans chapter 4 verse 12 
and the father of circumcision, to whom not only are of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. And verse 13, for the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through works, but through the righteousness of faith. Verse 14, for if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified, for the law brings about wrath. But where there is no law, there is also no violation. Verse 16, for this reason it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, Jewish people, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. <sighs> Context, context, context makes it clear. And so does the analogy of Scripture. We are not saved by works. We are saved by faith alone, which reveals itself in works. If in you have been striving, trying to earn salvation by working your way there, abandon that sinking ship and join the family of God by joining in the faith of Abraham, who believed in faith alone. That was from Wretched. I can see that on YouTube. W-R-E-T-C-H-E-D. Wretched is her YouTube channel. Also, Wretched.org is their website. Where they have, that's the, from the TV show, and they also have a radio show. or also known as a podcast. And um, check it out. Like I said, wretched.org, wretched.org. And thanks for listening to me with Catchway here on Troopy Toll Radio. And now this. Get social with Truth Be Told Radio. Check us out on our Facebook like page at Truth Be Told Radio. You can find our website at truthbetoldradio.com. That is... T-R-U-T-H-B-E-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O dot C-O-M. Truthbetoldradio.com. Do you have any questions, suggestions, comments, or want to tell us anything? Send those emails to truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. Remember, by sending us your email, you give us permission to read it on the air. So write us at truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. If you like to read blogs, we've got you covered. Check out ours at truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. That's truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. Also, follow us on Twitter as Truth, the letter B, then Told Radio. That is T-R-U-T-H-B-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O. Once again, that is Truth, the letter B only, not B-E, Told Radio. This is due to the restraints for Twitter's username link. Finally, to learn the testimony of Melissa Canchoa, the hostess of Truth Be Told Radio, see smilesandstuff.com. That's S-M-I-L-E-S-A-N-D-S-T-U-F-F dot C-O-M. Smilesandstuff.com. So stay social with us, and thanks for listening to Truth Be Told Radio.
made you? God made me. What else did God make? All things. Why did God make all things? For his glory. How can you glorify God? By loving him and doing what he commands. Where do you learn how to love and obey God? In the Bible. What's the Bible? God's word. God's word. God's word.
so I got for a trip to Victoria today to go with Nancy and friends and the reliability. Bye for now. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.